Hi, this is Bob Wells here, and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. This is the show where we hear about people's interests and uncover some fascinating stories at the same time. In today's show, we welcome back historian Bill Cunningham, and we discuss the Georgian period in British history, a period that lasted 120 years and which we attempt to cover bite-size in just over half an hour. If your knowledge of the Georgians is limited, perhaps you conjure up images of Jane Austen novels, characters like Mr Darcy, or towns such as Bath or Royal Leamington Spa, this show is definitely for you. I hope that you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the show, Bill. Good morning, Bob. Bill, before we get into the subject, can you tell us a little bit more about how you became interested in the Georgians? Well, I've always been a very keen history buff, amateur history buff, and um, uh, and I got particularly interested in the Georgians when I uh, uh, started working at a local stately home called Grimsaw Castle, uh, and obviously have to take people around on tours within the castle. Uh, large parts of it relate to the Georgians, uh, uh, the whole family history during this 18th century, where they were Dukes of Ancaster at the time, and the entire frontage is a great huge um, 1720s uh, uh, frontage, even though it does you know, um, lead on to a Tudor property. And once you start digging into the family backgrounds of these people, I mean, it's not just the, the, the great history that occurred at the time, be it the French Revolution or uh, the America, you know, the war, the you know, Seven Years' War, things like that. It was just digging into their backgrounds, how they lived. You, you know, you walk down a corridor with the family portraits on either side and you see these people looking at you and you think, you know, what were they like? How did they behave? What went on? It's a, it's a, you start to pick up a bit of knowledge about it. And also, um, uh, I have also started this year as a tour guide, town tour guide at Stamford in Lincolnshire. And Stamford itself uh, is a very old town, but large parts of it are, in fact, Georgian. And they d- indeed have a Georgian festival in September where people from all over the world come over and uh, have a week there dressing up as uh, uh, Mr. Darcy. And in, in doing that, I started to pick up more about... Um, the uh, the architecture of the time and, and how things were put together and, and how they socialised and things of that nature and from that you just it opens up and you read a bit more the, the, the exciting people they're colourful a nice spirit of colour before the Victorian era arrived and they were quite naughty as well which is quite uh, well, interesting no doubt we'll hear about that so the name the name Georgian Bill where where does the name Georgian come from it comes from the uh, King George's. Uh, the first King George, George I, came over from Hanover. He basically he had a fairly remotish claim to the throne, but his one thing in his favour was he was a Protestant. Uh, and though he was German, he didn't speak English. He came over in 1714 and became George I. Then after that, he had George II, George III, and finally George the IV, uh, who was um, often known as Prince Regent. And so it ran roughly from about 1714 and in theory up to about um, 1830 when um, George the fourth died uh, but the um, the thing was from about 1811 sometimes it, it ceased to be known as Georgian period came more like the, the the Regency time but technically speaking it's named after four, four King Georges. Okay and, and also can you just tell us a little bit about the background to the Georgian period how it started and what, what immediately went up to it? Well, prior to that, you had um, the the Stuarts, the the monarchs of England. Uh, the last Stuart monarch was Queen Anne, uh, who died uh, childless in 1714. Uh, even though she had about 13 or 14 uh, 
pregnancies that none, none lived to any any decent age, which is rather sad for her. But then after that, there was no heir unless you looked at the uh, the King Jameses who were Stuarts. But unfortunately, they're exiles in France or the continent because being Catholic, they've been expelled from the country in 1689 and for being pretty useless apart from anything else. And so England would not be allowed to have a Catholic monarch. So they hunted around and they came up um, with the uh, King George I, who was the elector of Hanover. And he he was uh, uh, selected and he duly uh, became over, became King of England. And at the same time, the elector of Hanover. Hence the strong German connection of our royal family as today. In fact, oddly enough, if you um, look at, um, I was watching the TV the other day and I saw Prince William chatting away. Yeah. And um, if you look at him, and you get out portraits of the King Georges of the 1700s, there's a distinct family resemblance. In Grimsworth Castle, there a similarity. Absolutely. If you have a look at it, you can see there's a portrait in Grimsworth Castle in one of the state rooms of yeah. George the Third on his coronation. And you look at his face, and you look at the face of King William, and there's a definite similarity. You see that the, the well, pretty, pretty, the, the size of the nose and, and the jowls, and, yeah. and again, you look the, the, the you know the George the Second and First. Um, okay. You can see that family resemblance there. Another little thing: they seem to live for quite a long time. The four Georges actually, they, they lived for quite a while, <laughs> well Did into they? the sixties and seventies. Which um, in those days, indeed, in eight, uh, their eighties, and one of them, which in those days was pretty good going. Yeah. So we've we've heard how long the period went on for. It was obviously between the, the Stuarts and the Victorian period. Yep. Um, what was life like for, should we say, a normal, not an, arist- an aristocrat, um, not a really poor person, but an, an ordinary person living, let's say, in England? What was life like? It could be worse. I mean, obviously, uh, mortality was fairly high. If you managed to survive, um, you know, your, your in- infanthood, then that's a good start. Even though if you're, say, middle class, like Jane Austen uh, family, the sons of a rector or a curate, uh, you know, life was still fairly tenuous. Um, uh, you know, you, you could be carried away with uh, illness and disease. Indeed, uh, Jane Austen herself died about 41 or 42 years of, of age. Um, yeah. You know, the, the things are improving all the time. You know, you, uh, literacy was expanding an awful lot. You had the start of the novel. You know, the, the, the writers like um, Defoe was coming on and Richardson, uh, Fielding, and ending up uh, with Walter Scott and indeed Jane Austen herself. So you had uh, greater, in- more interesting things to read. Uh, for a middle class, upper middle class person, you had probably a good social life in as much as the assembly rooms were starting up. So you could go to balls. Theatres were thriving fairly well. Um, and if you're a young a gentleman of, of um, a sporting fame, you could go cockfighting or, or, or other more, uh, or fox hunting or racing. Um, so I would paint a rosy picture, um, but it wasn't too bad. By and large, it, at the beginning of the Georgian period, it was also a rural time as well. The, the vast bulk yeah. of the people would, would have been involved on the land. But we've got to bear in mind, this is the start of the Industrial Revolution. So as the years went by, you had that the start of uh, the Industrial Revolution. You had canals 
being built. You had an improvement in road communications as time went by when, you know, they improved the uh, communication by road, started surfacing them better, things like that. And the whole country, then you had the move to the towns because industry was starting to develop, um, be the cotton industry or coal or shipbuilding. And then, then you had a more of an urban population starting to build up. So a bit of a contrast between the rural ones, which have been the Jane Austen types of the lovely ladies wandering around the empire gowns, snipping rose heads and things like that, to, to you know, living in a, in a, in a town in, in north of England. Uh, it was a time of huge, huge change. And also about this other time, you had the massive expansion of London. At the beginning of the Georgian period, London might have had 100, 150, 200,000 200, population. By the end of it, it's over a million. By yeah, far and away, the yeah. largest city in Europe. And that yeah. had a big contract. Had London in itself, as it is today, is a whole different world to the rest of the nation. Um, um, and what, what what was the before the Industrial Revolution then, uh, at the uh, the sort of first part of the, the Georgian period, what, what was the population? What sort of levels of population did, did it If did we just have? take... England, you're probably looking about five, six million, if that, at that sort of yeah. level, uh, England. But then you have had on things like Ireland, because Ireland was was a part of um, the United Kingdom at the time, and indeed in um, 1801, I think it was, they, they, you know, the Parliament merged uh, w- w- with England, and that had a pretty sizable population. And you stick Scotland on on top. So if you're talking, say, about the Napoleonic times, about 1800, you, you're looking about a mil- uh, 15 million. And, and I guess this was the time that the, the British Empire, you know, started as, to really expand, was it? Bill? Absolutely. Yes, yes. It really was the big, big build up. You have um, uh, the, the, the time opens up with the um, this, this uh, War of the Spanish Succession, which ended just at the start of the Georgian period. Um, and we gained a few things from that. And as time went by, it was noted with virtually continuous warfare with the French. Um, ending in 1815 with the defeat of Napoleon. And you had the great wars of um, uh, the Seven Years' War where we ended up beating the French, as we we should do, uh, and we gained uh, (laughs) North America. Well, we we kept um, the 13 colonies, but then obviously gained Canada, took that off the French. We um, uh, conquered India effectively. Uh, with uh, uh, Clive's victories and also, so, so we, we do have we end. do have quite a bit of history with the French, don't we? We, we you know yes. it still still carries on today. Still that, that a bit um, of friendly rivalry, competitiveness. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, and of course, so it was what you call the, the 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 first British Empire. The first British Empire would meaning basically that the first British Empire ended with the loss of loss of the American colonies, and that that's what we termed up to the first British Empire. Then after that, after a bit of a long we started to build up again, fight the French yeah. again, virtually what, over 20 years of the revolutionary French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Wars, ending up in 1815, which is still within the Georgian time, still in the range of George III, with the, you know, big top dogs, not only um, against the French, but indeed possibly the world with respect to our huge wealth with industry and, and the empire. Um, Britain for that time was a top dog. And and how how this is a, a controversial one, Bill. How important was the slave trade to the contribution of the success of the British Empire? Um, it was a, a major part of it. Uh, obviously, a controversial part. Um, and if you go to towns like Bristol or Liverpool or Glasgow, they they certainly uh, um, got a huge amount of wealth over that particular matter. Um, yeah. It's obviously not a glorious part of our history, but then then again, you know. 
many nations in history have been involved with slaving one way or another, and indeed even to some time to today. It did contrib contribute. The, the West Indian islands were fabulously wealthy. Um, indeed, at one point in time, I think uh, we were in negotiations at the end of the American uh, War of Independence. I think, well, um, what's worth more, Barbados, one island, or the entire north, you know, it, all of Canada. And it was felt that Barbados was far more valuable than, than you know, Canada because yeah. of the, the sugar trade, because sugar was was very, very important. Um, and um, the Georgians loved sugar and indeed tobacco. Um, if you say take sugar, um, uh, that, that was extremely popular in Georgian times. Um, they have a bit of a sweet tooth. Uh, and it's hard to imagine this, but in, in Georgian times, people had really bad teeth. And that wasn't shown as a mark of disrespect or being, in fact, it, it is a, a mark of a bit of wealth because it means you could afford to eat a lot of sugar and have rotten teeth. So, so having, having, having rotten teeth was almost like a status symbol, is that what oh, I wouldn't go that far, but it wasn't exactly, you know, most, it was the yeah. way of the world. So if you could imagine going to a, a nice assembly room ball in, um, in a, be in London or a provincial town like Stamford, You'd assemble there for your ball. They'd have the ball in the assembly rooms. Uh, normally, they'd be done when it's a full moon because you didn't have street lighting in those days. And you'd gather at your assembly room. So everybody would get all dolled up. So a chap will get his best wig and his best clothing on. And ladies will get dressed in their, their, their lovely, lovely frocks, put a bit of powder on, a bit of lead paint over your face. Put a few lead paint? Spot, yes, yes. Put a few booty spots on, stick your wig on, and then put in your false teeth, ready to uh, woo the ladies. Um, what was person. the point? What was the point of the wigs? Um, uh, basically, because uh, somewhat due to hygiene, um, uh, it, you know, I, I would say people were deliberately dirty in those days. But but you no, know, uh, water was hard to come by because yeah. you know you didn't have piped water into your house. If if you're an ordinary middle class person, then you know you might be lucky to have a pump or a well in your garden. Uh, or, or you, you might have to send the servants down the street to get water. And we've got to put our minds back to that, you know, simple things, basic things like water. Uh, if you want to have a bath, it's a bit of a, a bit of a pain because you've got to go and uh, get your servants, if you're lucky to have servants, to come and, um, you know, fill up your bath. And that could take quite some time. So obviously people bathe less. And if you had long hair, then really it could get quite itchy and in infected. So basically what uh, most uh, middle class men would do, they'd shave their head. And put a wig on has been a, a much easier thing. And that persisted right through the um, Georgian area here up until, until the end, when, as a result of the, the wars in France, get very expensive, um, uh, they put a tax on wig powder in 1795. A tax on, a tax on, on wig powder. powder. Yep, yep. Okay. Uh, called a, a guinea, a guinea, a, a guinea tax on wig powder to the household. So that, that's where that's where the name guinea came from, is it? Oh, let me finish. Yeah. So and that with the wig powder tax going in, it, it altered the men's hairstyle fashions because some of them decided I'm not paying that tax, and they then basically just had shorter hair, and they cut their hair short. And they used to call it uh, the mode style a la guillotine. Because prior to the um, uh, aristocrats being guillotined in the French Revolution, they used to have the hair cut very short. And therefore, yeah. that's what uh, gentlemen would do. And those, those men would also class themselves as, as, as the wig type. Whereas the, uh, the Tories, they would carry on wearing their wigs. Um, yeah. And they're a different political party. They carry on wearing their wigs. 
And um, a lot of those people would have been the ones who would be like the lawyers or the judges or the higher class people. And they were sometimes known as the big wigs. Ah, I see. So that, that's where it came from. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, or they, indeed, they're sometimes known as the guinea pigs because they're guinea prepared pigs. to pay the guinea, fire, guinea tax. Okay. Uh, there's okay. loads of expressions you get from um, uh, Georgian times. And, and you know, they, they had taxes on so many things. And it's why I find it quite an interesting time because even dull topics like taxes can be made interesting. Um, tell, tell us all about the taxes then. Bill. Yeah, well, back in those days, we had almost constant war with the French particularly when you get to the revolutionary wars of the 1790s and the Napoleonic Wars that followed on. Um, Britain was the banker, the bankroller for for the uh, the wars. Uh, yes, we had a navy, big navy, not a huge army, and we fought against um, the French first with the revolutionaries and then against Napoleon. And that's very expensive. And what we did, we also, we also subsidised all the other com- countries to fight for us. We paid a fortune to the Austrians and the Prussians to actually do the fighting for us, which was, was nice of them. And so they needed constant money. So loads of taxes. Like, for example, you had a, obviously the one we're quite well aware of, it's a window tax. That actually started before the Georgian era. And basically, if you had more than six windows in your property, you're liable to a tax. And therefore, you've walked around many English towns now. You'll see houses with bricked up windows. And that's yeah, a window tax. Yeah. yeah, that actually, actually lasted until the 1850s. But then yeah. you had a, a tax on snuff. In those days, you had powdered tobacco, and people would sniff it to clear the nose, and it was um, uh, and it's called snuff. And um, uh, the, the, so you had a tax on that, and that was called, um, uh, people could describe it as paying through the nose, because you were taxed ah. on sniffing. Uh-huh. And then you had another, you had, you had a tax on bricks. So you had a tax on the number of bricks in your, in your property. So then what people did after that was actually have larger bricks, so you see, some, as the years went by, you see larger bricks going into um, into properties that would reduce the tax you've got to pay on it, and they'd be called cobs. And then you had the wig, the, the wig powder tax. You had um, taxes on hats and gloves, which is quite odious because you know wearing a hat was absolutely um, virtually a compulsion to be naked going out of the house without a hat. And you had things like um, wallpaper, wallpaper tax. They put a tax on wallpaper. Then people found a way around it. Basically, they put the wallpaper up but had nothing on it, and then they then they painted it afterwards themselves. So they got around the tax. Yeah. And then finally, the most infamous one of all was um, income tax, which was introduced in 1799 as a yeah. temporary measure to help pay for the Napoleonic Wars. But clearly, it's not been that temporary. The thing is, I do like I defend it to Georgians here that. Um, uh, we go on about oh, city tax in wigs and stuff like that. We have VAT now. Tax is yeah. virtually everything. So. Yeah. so, Bill, tell us a little bit about the political system and, and voting during this period. What what happened? Oh, it's it, it's quite fun, really. You had the um, uh, at the time there were basically two political parties. You had uh, the king as a constitutional monarch and parliament, and it ground town to about two main parties. One was called the Tories. They were a party of the landed gentry, the upper class, uh, the Anglican church, and they were what you might call the right wing side. And then you had the other party called the Whigs, and they were the landed gentry, the aristocracy, but not quite so many clergy. It was, a, it was an upper class thing. It was a middle after middle class thing. Was it, you know, uh, and the voting was hugely limited with maybe one percent of the population getting a vote who was eligible to vote in those days uh, basically you had to own a certain amount of land uh, before you could vote 
So your your average your average Joe couldn't couldn't vote. Certainly not. No, no. You'd probably look at maybe one two percent of the population could vote. It's, it's a very very small amount, um, and it might vary the qualifications between being in the countryside or being in the town. And it had huge yeah. anomalies. Um, for example, you'd have the rotten boroughs. Why is it called a rotten borough? The rotten borough because of the the, uh, the corruption involved in it. Rotten, say Stamford had um, um, a population of about three or four thousand, three thousand yeah. say, and it could um, elect two MPs. Elect in a very loose term as they were appointed by the local aristocrat. Whereas Manchester or Birmingham, with populations in the latter half of the century of about three hundred thousand people apiece, could elect one single MP. We could have Old Sarum, a place in Wiltshire, which had the population of about four sheep, and that was allowed to elect an MP. Uh, and they're called Rotter Big simply they are, you know, you know, the, the franchise just, just just didn't work. So if you lived in Manchester, you didn't have your own MP. Um, and that's simply because the, 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 these boroughs and the MPs were formulated at the time of several hundred years before when people lived in the country and it was changed. Then you have the advent of the Industrial Revolution where you have the rise of Glasgow and Edinburgh and, and, and sorry, Glasgow and Birmingham and Manchester and the political system didn't keep up with the times not until about 1832 when it was properly reformed. Um, yeah. But elections are great fun. Um, obviously, I've got a particular interest in Sanford of forming elections there. And, you know, they were quite riotous affairs. You know, it w- w- was... was um, you know, nothing screams about. Although the franchise was extremely limited, I think the population did like to have a good time, and and you know, corruption was quite rife. There was no secret ballot until eighteen sixty eight. Therefore, you know, you, you know, you stood in, you know, by the hustings and cast your vote, and everybody would know which side you're voting for. So, if like in the the, the case of a town like Stamford, the the, the MP. Uh, was more or less in the pocket of the local aristocrat. If he saw you voting against his nomination, uh, as he owned the bulk of the town, you'd be evicted. So um, from your house. So it's very corrupt. Uh, bribery is common. You just just basically buy the votes off people, be it with money or huge amounts of alcohol. Uh, the populace, even though they may not have the vote, would enjoy a good riot. Um, yeah. So quite 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 usual to have a, a good old fight and a riot uh, during the election. And in terms of everyday life, food and drink, what what sort of food and drink stuffs did people used to have? Um, obviously, a lot less meat was consumed than, than we do these days. Uh, a lot more, you know, if you're poorer, then a lot of your diet would be down to um, non-meat things. Uh, they, they'd consume interesting products were coming back back onto the uh, onto the market. Things like pineapples are hugely valuable. Uh, and in fact, you see often little stone carvings of um, valuables, uh, pineapples in stately homes because, uh, you know, there, there were something special. Tea. You know, the Georgians put tea on the map. Uh, that really can. That's expensive. Um, and tea was very important. Think of the, the Boston Tea Party when in the, uh, you know, prior to the American uh, War of Independence, you know, they, they, they emptied the, the tea uh, into the harbour at Boston. And tea was extremely fashionable. And uh, if you went to an assembly room for your ball, um, and they normally have them about a monthly basis, then, then um, you'd have tea, and not alcohol. And coffee? Coffee, coffee, was, uh, coffee was for the coffee houses. 
um, uh, again, a, an expensive product. Coffee houses, would you imagine the likes of Dr. Johnson in his coffee house chatting away and, uh, you know, building up his dictionary or whatever. And, and they were meant to be relatively reputable places, coffee houses. Um, but a lot of the middle class would focus on, on tea. Then you had the sugar, as we discussed earlier. Um, and and if, if you say take um, a light state, you food generally wasn't hot. Food would have been um, uh, quite often cold because if, if you're a, a duke in a house, your kitchens are going to be some distance away. And um, by the time you got to your table, it would, would be cold. And, and that was yeah. considered the norm. Uh, no, not, not unusual. We can go to the supermarket now and we can buy a bag of ice, for example. So I guess, did, did, they, did they have uh, access to ice in those days for yes. drinks and things? Yes. Tell us about that, Bill. Sorry, you and I would have access to um, ice because we're not quite that that social starter. No, <laughs> you, they, they would have. A, um, if you say take, um, you know, a lord of the, you know, a, an aristocrat or someone extremely wealthy, they'd have normally have say a thing like an ice house in their in their grounds in their in, an ice in house. their estate. Yeah. So what would happen is they they build this house, a semi submerged, yeah. um, uh, and they, they 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 dig it into the ground a bit, and they'd heap. Um, they're like little top beehives, the top of them, um, and then they, they, they put put a roof in and then f- cover the whole lot with a mound of earth. And you do still see these in stately homes, and, and they're still there. And what they do in the winter time, when the say the lake froze up that um, they they got in the ground, or they, they they the servants would cut the ice, take it from the frozen lake, put it into the ice house, and seal it all up. And that could last for months. We have to bear in mind that winters were a lot harsher in those days. In the 1790s, they were especially harsh. And the Thames would freeze over on a regular basis and they'd have fairs there. So it doesn't seem as ridiculous then as as it does now. That Yeah, that that would last well into the summer indeed. What ways did they have for preserving food? Uh, Salt or smoking. There's no other way. Or or put put a really good smelly spice on to hide the taste of the disgusting putrid meat. One of the things that always comes up, like, which I find quite interesting, is this access to alcohol um, in the belief that if you were, a, you know, somebody working in the fields, you, you would give your kids and, and you'd have yourself some some beer um, yeah. because the water w- was, you know, not 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 wise to drink. Is is, is that how much truth is, is there in that? Uh, uh, yeah, total truth. They didn't really drink water. Um, right. uh, no, it would be beer. Be, uh, for something like that, for family, children, whatever, you, you have small beer. Um, so that would be sort of weak beer. Uh, but no, no. The, uh, if you lived in the countryside, yeah, you might go down to a stream and get water. But in the towns there, you know, you, you don't really have access to much. You maybe go to a pump in the street. It's amazing how many of these sayings we, we talk about now. You just mentioned small beer. Is that where it came from? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that's where you'd have your, your lunch. Around, or, or, or indeed, it depends what part of the country you were. If you're in, say, uh, Somerset or Devon, you'd have cider. Small um, cider. Uh, yeah, you'd have cider by, by, by the bucket yeah. load. And so, yeah, it, it, people would drink beer. And um, you'd have, um, uh, you know, most pubs would be, be they'd brew their own. Um, and quite often, up until the Victorian times, you've been a bit more of a beer man than me, uh, brewing was done by women. 
um, uh, more so than when it changed the Victorian times when it became a main, a main, a man's thing. But uh, quite yeah. often it was uh, brewed by women. So they, they didn't drink much water or they didn't drink any water. Is that what you say? pretty dodgy to drink water in those days. Yeah. If I live in the middle of London, would you really want to uh, drink water? I mean, even right into Victorian times, you know, uh, you know, they, they, the, the cholera outbreaks that occurred in um, the Victorian times were immense. I mean, Prince Albert died of it. And that's that's well after um, uh, the, yeah. the Georgian. So, no, and, and it, they would... And they would tend to they would tend to drink beer in the evening as well, I guess. If you're poor, yeah. If you're rich, you drink yeah. wine. So, so if you're poor, brandy. let's assume smuggled in brandy from the smugglers. Right. So let's assume you're poor. You you work hard all all day, either in the fields or or in industry in the latter part of the uh, the period. You have a few drinks of beer during the day. You have some some. You must have slept very well. I would have thought. Well, you've got to bear in mind if if it's light is important thing because. Um, you know, you, you come home at night now and you put an electric light on. In those days, you're really restricted to, um, uh, you know, um, candlelight and candles cost money. When did gas lamps come in? Gas lamps are more Victorian time. Right. At the end of the, at the, end of the Georgian period, you had more oil lamps were coming into, into vogue. But, but if you take the average poor man, really, they, they can't afford to have lots of candles running at night. And they had different yeah. qualities of candles as well. So they'd yeah. have a cheap tallow candle, uh, candle, which would give off a lot of smoke and stink the place out as well. Wars, we, we mentioned earlier. Um, in the Stuart period, we, we had the Civil War yep. that took place. Were there, were, were there any civil type wars or disturbances during this period? No, lots of them, yeah. yeah. Uh, if you take wars... Um, the only civil wars that occurred would have been the two um, Jacobite rebellions of 1715 and more famously of 1745, and that was basically yeah. a civil war. You know, um, uh, you know, different parts of the country um, fighting that out. Uh, yeah. There's no internal revolution. Uh, we're very lucky not to have that. If you look at the French, they had their, their revolution. Yeah. Just we, just we before did. we move on on that, Bill, um, Jacobites, yeah. what, what does that mean? Where, where does the name come from? Um, it, as you mentioned earlier, the um, uh, the Stuarts, the last uh, last Stuart one was Queen Anne because she was a, a, a Protestant. But yeah. King James II, was he, um, he was expelled from England in 1689 in the Glorious Revolution when uh, William of Orange came over. Uh, and with his English wife Mary, and they took over the throne, and they they were Protestants, and basically you couldn't have a Catholic king after that, even to this this day. Um, and uh, so King James fled, and he fled with his family, and he had a son called James as well, and they lived in France, notably um, with the French king in exile, and because his name was James, the um, they were, they they were called Jacobites. So that faction, uh, that Stuart right. yeah, faction, yeah. ended up being called Jacobites after the name yeah. of James, and that that carried on. You know, seventeen forty-five, they were defeated at Culloden, and um, uh, and and started to you know move move out of history at that point in time. But you would have lots of good riots. I mean, the Georges loved a riot. Heaven's sake! So uh, you know. Um, <laughs> I keep going on about Stanford, that's because I'm no familiar. They had a lovely right in 1734 over the election there, right? Right, bloody dry where, you know, the, you know, buildings were set on fire. Indeed, the Jacobites had a, a, a riot in, uh, in Stanford and burnt down several buildings. And then, of course, you had um, the mob in London was ferocious. The Gordon riots in London, which are anti-Catholic riots um, in the late 1700s. I mean, the whole yeah. town was shut down for about a week. Uh, yeah. with, with great loss of life. Um, and, it, yeah, there's always that great fear of the mob. 
The politicians yeah. in the back of their mind had to fear the mob because that could rise up and cause problems. Well, yeah, it's not surprising when, when as you said earlier, 1% of the population are entitled to vote. I can see how the mob became quite infuriated. No, I think they just like a good fight, that was all. Did they? Did they? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think any intellectual thing came into it somehow <laughs> so, we'll have a right do a bit of looting and get really really drunk <laughs> um, okay. but no no they, it was uh, you know quite robustious times and uh, yeah. and I think probably politicians in the back of their mind had to bear that in mind with the mobs they do have to placate them every now and again and not, not yeah. go over the top yeah. Uh, but towards the end, uh, around the French Revolution time, things did get quite repressive, though, because you know the the, the, the powers that be were extremely nervous of revolution, and um, you know they, they did meet out, uh, lot, you know, lots of repressive laws were coming in, and they had one or two um, you know executions to uh, keep people in tow. I mean, indeed, the last um, man to be uh, hung, drawn, and quartered in. Um, in Britain was actually during the uh, the time to the beginning of the Napoleonic Wars, about uh, 17, um, uh, 1782, sorry, about 1782, where uh, uh, a, a clerk in the Admiralty um, in the Navy, he um, uh, gave away secrets to the French and he yeah. was found guilty of treason. And he was the last man to be um, uh, hung, drawn and quartered in, in England. Um, and for, pe- for people who aren't familiar with what hung, drawn and quartered is Bill? Can, can you explain what that is? It's actually uh, it's the execution for being a um, a, tre- a, 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 a traitor. It's a, the traitor's the traitor's death. And yeah. um, in, in in old and, and we we use the wrong expression of it now um, because it's um, we say home drawn and quartered. No, what you do you were drawn. You were taken from the prison and you were drawn on like a, a wooden board through the town on your back so the population could jeer at you and shout at you and what have you and um, you were drawn to your place of execution you were hung by your neck uh, now in the early days medieval times and up into Stuart times you're hung for a very very short time um, and then you were um, uh, cut down and they chop your body into quarters and I think I might, but the, it was slightly different. Uh, the, yeah, they did other things, unfortunately, to, to you beforehand before you chop your body up as well. So it's not not a very present, not a very pleasant no. death indeed. Um, uh, but um, yeah, that that persisted right the way up. And if you bear with me, there's a lovely quotation I've got um, about the execution of uh, in 1782 of uh, a Mr. Tyree, a uh, David Tyree, who was the the, the the chap who spied. Uh, and by that time, they did it slightly differently. So what do I'll just read this for a quote. Uh, the crowd of people of all ranks assembled by four o'clock this morning at the gates of the jail to see Tyree set off for the place of execution. And the crowd was very great. About five o'clock, he was put into a coach with six horses, attended by the ordinary undersheriff, jailer, etc., and conveyed to Portsmouth, where he's been delivered to the mayor and police of the town. He was drawn on a sledge the place of execution after praying a little uh, a little time he was turned off and hanged until almost dead was then cut down his head severed from his body his bowels taken out and his heart sewn uh, shown to the surrounding multitude and then thrown into a fire made for that purpose the body was then quartered and put into a coffin the concourse of people was immense and such as was the singular avarice 
of many who were near the body that happy was he who could procure a finger or some vestige of the criminal. Absolutely that's charming. So, but that was, that, so he, was, he, was he was okay at the time because he was virtually dead when they started to, yeah. to they, they cut off his head. But years before that, it was deliberately done to prolong it as long as possible. And that, then after that, he still had that, that, that sentence of, of drawn and quartered, but after that, they didn't bother, they did just hung you. That's it. Yeah. So, so that, that happened at the end of the, end of the 18th century? 1782. So, so really, not that long ago, about two years ago. Not that long ago. I say the, 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 the yeah. sentence still carried on for another few years, but they, they, they dispensed yeah. with the chopping up. They, they just hung you, and that was it, and maybe chopped your head off when you're dead. We see it as quite barbaric, and, and yet it's only just over 200 years ago. That's right. Well, the last um, woman to have burned at the stake uh, was also um, uh, about that sort of time. Um, in, in the Georgian times? Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. In 1789, a lady called Christian Bowman. She was not found guilty of treason. She found guilty of counterfeiting. She actually did counterfeit coinage and put the king's head on the coin, which did a, a treason offence because she was sort of, um, you know, abusing the king's head. And she was actually um, taken from Newgate to the scaffold. And uh, the, uh, she was hung up and the stool was kicked away from underneath her. And she was hung and left hanging for half an hour. She was just dead. And then they piled um faggots around her and and and, and um, set fire to them so it, mm. although she was burned at the stake it wasn't the yeah. way things um you know you know she was dead at the time and that that was ceased afterwards they stopped doing that so you were getting to a stage where you had these things were fairly tough but they they, they were moving away from uh cruelty um, no. i mean at, at that time I mean, you you could be hung for any sort of 220 crimes so, um, so basically, you, uh, it was a capital. There were 220 crimes which had a capital offence. Yeah. So, if you stole goods worth more than a shilling, then you would could could face a death penalty. Wow. Uh, it sounds harsh, but people weren't as cruel as we think because what would happen quite often is the juries say someone sold ten pounds worth of goods. When the jury did it and the courts did it, they'd suddenly find out the value of the goods was worth about five pence. So um, and then so instead of the, the person being um, hung, they'd often be transported to be America or latterly Australia. So they weren't as nasty as, as, as no, we think. No. You know, there was a degree of compassion. There. Obviously, yeah. there were certain judges were hanging judges, but um, there was a degree of compassion coming forward. And, yeah. and they were starting to um, do things like in the early part of the Georgian period. The, the, in London, the execution point was Tyburn. And then you be drawn along. To be taken yeah. from Newgate down, uh, draw, um, taken in a car to Tyburn, and then you were hung. But you were hung by being pulled up slowly, so you were strangled. Yeah. But after that, they moved it to a different yeah. place in the latter part of the Georgian time. And instead of being strangled, that, that's when you had the drop where you were, um, um, you know, you were stood on top of the scaffold, a, a, a trapdoor was dropped down and, and you, and you yeah. fell or, or whatever. Yeah. But there's interesting yeah. things all about um, hanging, if, if I may go forward on it. You say, for example, you take um, uh, the executioner would hang you and he'd have the right to have the rope afterwards of the hanging. And that rope was considered quite precious by the population for very superstitious reasons. And so what the, the, the hangman would do, he'd, he'd cut up bits of rope and he'd sell them yeah. to the spectators. And that's where you get the expression money for old rope. Another exp- another one of your expressions, Bill. Yeah, and another one goes with hangings. A lot about that because it's a popular pastime at the time watching a hanging. Um, 
when you when they were drawn by the cart on the way to Tybert, for example, if it's a really popular criminal, and there were popular criminals going for hanging, and they, they put on a good show, uh, you know, like Jonathan Wild, Highwayman, and things like that, and uh, and they, they, they'd be drawn along, and as went by each pub, often the publican would come out and give them drink, brandy, or whatever happened to be, to, to, the, to, to the, the, the criminal. And then yeah. by the time they get to the um, place of execution, you know, the criminals had a whole shed load of alcohol, and that's yeah. when they take him off the wagon, ready for execution. That's when you get the phrase, I've come off the wagon. The come wagon. The another one. Another one. Uh, oh, there's another one. You want to know, should we go for it? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're, uh, we're getting going now, Bill. <laughs> and then you get the expression that, um, as I said, in the early days, they they, 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 were, they were pulled up and strangled. Um, yeah. And if, if what you would do to help hasten death, so you have the person hanging up from the rope, to help hasten death, their friends or relatives would come along and hang on to their ankles to pull them down to, to hasten death. And that's yeah. where you get the expression, hangers on. Ah, right. Another one. I know. It's a it, it, no, good time. You could have a whole, a whole, we could have a, we could have a whole episode about you talking about where these say. Oh, you could do it. It's a massive event. The crowds were huge. If ever you go to the lights of places like Lincoln Castle, um, yeah. on top of one of the turrets, highest point around, uh, they they set up the, the the gallows there, and you'd have tens of thousands of people come around to watch a good execution. So this this was the equivalent of, go, of going to see uh, Manchester United at Trafford or something. Yeah, 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 and you always get the result you want. So it's 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 it's. There was only one result. Only yeah. one result. But no, the, the, the colourful times. Colourful times. Yeah, colourful times. Now talking about colour, um, what about things like art? I, I mentioned a bit earlier on. You know, you've got Gainsborough and Constable. Um, big big time for art, was it? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I don't pretend to be an art historian in, in any no. way, but I have been interested with doing the jobs I've done to, um, you know, get involved with art. My, my lot's been around um, uh, portraiture because being a guide in a state at home, there's loads and loads of portraits there and uh, of the yeah. family members, basically. And those are what I particularly like. Uh, and yes. You'd have... Um, obviously, Joshua Reynolds was was the classic one. He he was around at the time. He painted the good and the great. Um, another one was uh, Sir Thomas Lawrence. He uh, he was at the latter part seventeen nineties into the 18, early eighteen hundreds, and he he painted fantastic pictures. And you, know, you, you could see them, and, and you could see how modern they look. Um, and he was a great portraiture. He had Thomas Hudson as well, another a great portraiture, because portraits were the, the photographs of the time. Yeah. And uh, uh, they really mattered. And it was a bit of an industry, really. For example, you take uh, the portraits of George III, his coronation portrait. You'll see it quite often in many places. Uh, that was done by a chap called Ramsey. Now, Ramsey did the initial portrait. Then he had a production line of apprentices and minor artists who just copied them. And, you know, so yeah. you take the coronation one of George III, there's about 120 copies of it. And so it was quite a quite a production machine. So the the the, the, the artist might do the face, say the, the toughness, yeah. and and the the um, uh, the apprentices and the followers on would put in the arms and the hands. So sometimes you get a nice looking face and really rubbish looking hands. Uh, but I don't pretend to be an, I don't pretend to be an art historian. No. Uh, and at that time, you got my favourite. Um, oh, of course, you got the landscapers like Constable Gainsborough. I love Gainsborough. I'd love to see the. the the portrait of Gainsborough, he does with the people there, with their, the ladies in particular, with their lovely um, hairdos of the 1770s and 80s, huge hairdos, and yeah. uh, their, their lovely 
clothing is absolutely magnificent. Uh, my my favourite one is actually both an artist and a poet. Uh, is William Blake is my favourite poet. Um, yeah. I studied him at well, not studied him from A level at school, and uh, it's fabulous. And his, his paintings and pictures are, are really quite um, gothic or, or, or modern looking in some respects. Yeah. So it was, it was a time of um, it's a time of the Enlightenment, you know, a time of the Enlightenment, moving on from the, the pseudo medieval times into um, into a new world. Hence the the Georgian architecture. And, uh, if you look at Georgian architecture, it's very classical. They're, they're rediscovering the classical architecture of ancient Rome and Greece, only deep parts of Egypt as well. And, yeah. you know, so if you look at Georgian property, the front of it will be a great Doric or Corinthian columns. And So, Bill, just for those that don't know about Enlightenment, can you just enlighten us a bit on what the word Enlightenment meant at the time, please? Yeah, the Enlightenment was really like an explosion in education, art, sciences, philosophy, which occurred from about the 1730s, 1740s onwards. And it has been known as the Enlightenment. And uh, that's when you get a great splurge in philosophy, like people like Voltaire, Hume, um, and they have the uh, 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 you know, creative arts starting up. There's also a reconnection with, with the classics. Um, so if you say take Georgian architecture of, of the 18th century, you notice that the frontages are, you know, like great uh, Doric columns from Greece or Corinthian columns or Roman things. And um, it was just reconnecting with the classics. And if you bear in mind, say, the previous century, the, the 1600s, it was full of religious strife and torment. You had Cromwell, you had the Thirty Years' War. And it, it, and I think they're, they're getting away from that and just, just exploring, just moving away from purely that, that uh, the Christian side of things and just, just opening up to the world. And, um, and hence, uh, you had that expression, Enlightenment. And yeah. um, it's a thing of Western Europe, really, not so much for other, other parts of the yeah. world. So on, on the architecture side, what sort of towns in England, Wales and Scotland would you say people could have a look at and see some of that evidence of, of the architecture that goes back to the Georgian time? Well, obviously you've got Bath. I mean, actually classic Jane austen type, lots and lots of Georgian architecture. But other other places um, are very important is, 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 in other words, Edinburgh, because um, – Scotland had a huge enlightenment. It, it moved from a very backward, primitive, poverty-stricken co- country to one at the forefront of education and the arts and sciences. With, with, and, and, you know, likes of James Watt and you had uh, Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations. You had Hume. You had the, ar- the architectures, the Adam brothers. And in Edinburgh, it's got a, a, a whole section called the New Town, which is basically a Georgian new town constructed um, outside the old medieval part. Edinburgh's very good. Another one, another city, and is, we're not just restricted to Great Britain here, the other city to have a lot is Dublin. Dublin yeah. has a very, very considerable Georgian section, which is um, uh, quite impressive, and that's worth seeing. Then you've got your, your other places like Leamington Spa, the spa towns, um, uh, and Harrogate, uh, and obviously another one I'll boast as own is, is Stanford as well, which has got lots and lots of Georgian architecture and, and lots of Georgian features about it. Indeed, in September time, they have a, a week, week-long Georgian festival. Whether that will occur this year or yeah. not, with all this pandemic, who, who knows? Just before we wrap up, Bill, what legacy have the Georgians left us? I think that, to me, is the foundation of the modern era. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, you know, the start of the industrial world. If we take England or Britain, rather, in the British Isles and the United Kingdom in particular, the, the legacy would be the start of the industrial revolution. If you think in our lovely, comfortable modern world, world the most significant thing that's occurred in the last 
250 years has been the move away from the agrarian economy into the world of industry. If we had, hadn't done that, then we wouldn't be you know, sitting here doing this podcast because it would be all much more primitive. So I would probably think the Georgian part would have been that, that, that flurry of education, that the, uh, the start of industry, uh, the moving away from maybe the old pure religious types to, to you know, new flourishing arts, um, the starts of novels. I mean, novels didn't really exist before that time. So you had the Walter Scotts, Jane Austens, um, the Daniel Defoe's of, of this or the Fieldings. Uh, so uh, to me, it's the beginning of what I would term the modern world. Yeah. Um, so, so you had basically a period of just over a hundred years that set us set it up for for the modern world as we see it today. I guess. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it does. With with still traces of uh, a more primitive lifestyle, shall we say, as well. But a lot of that's due due, due to the, the times you lived in. You know, we, we so we used to comfortable things, electricity, pipe, water, and things like that. If you had to wash your clothes on a regular basis, and you can't get hold of water, and that and you you can't cook because you don't have a kitchen. Um, you know life is a lot different. Bill, this has been a great conversation. If people want to find out more about the Georgians and fact about more about what you do with your tour guide, where, where should they go? Uh, there's lots of literature available about the Georgians that you can read up upon. Um, there's also some good, good novels to try out and have a look at. You know, you, you, you know the likes of Tom Jones by Fielding or um, uh, uh, Joseph Andrews by, by uh, uh, Fielding again, or Clarissa by Samuel Richardson, or, or Joseph Andrews rather by Samuel Richardson. It's, um, you know, a lot of those are, are quite roll-up-in little, little um, novels to, uh, to work your way through. Um, and again, there's, there's lots of Georgian architecture still around all over the place. Um, it's hard to get away, away yeah. from in some respects. Um, yeah. But the literature-wise, there's lots and lots and lots, um, which, which which is out there. We can put some of that stuff on the show notes for people to yes. yeah. hear yeah. about. And what about your tour, your touring, uh, your tour guide of Stanford? Uh, tell us a yes. bit about that. Well, unfortunately, because of the uh, the shutdown and, and lockdown, um, we've uh, I'm, I'm not doing any at the moment. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, no. uh, I work with a group of three or four others, and we're, we're known as the uh, the Mayor's Guide. And uh, I, I take people um, for a tour of Stamford Town, or a walking tour that is. Um, so it takes about an hour and fifteen minutes. And it, during that tour, there'll be a lot about the Georgians because Stamford has a lot of Georgian architecture. Not only that, it's got things like a assembly rooms you can discuss all about how, how people behaved it's got um, coaching inns it's um, it's a, very much a georgian town but also there's a lot of medieval history about stanford as well there's still lots of medieval properties about and it, it's just full of history yeah. you know, uh, be it um, the, the the elections or the ball running or all sorts thanks ever so much for your time today this has been a very interesting conversation and stay safe and you thanks a lot thanks go to today's guest Bill Cunningham historian and tour guide from the Stanford Mayor's Guides I really enjoyed that conversation and I hope like me you found the subject very interesting you have been listening to Undercurrent Stories I hope that you enjoyed the show please subscribe to the show for future episodes and if you like what you hear please share the show link to your friends and family and if you have 60 seconds I'd be most grateful if you would please rate and review Please check out our webpage and social media links where details can be found on the show notes. Until next time, this is Bob Wells wishing all the very best.